Hello, everybody. It's Dustin from the HP Podcast. I'm here with Ben. Hello. And we've got a very special episode for you here for a special Friday Bonus episode. episode. Bonus. That's the theme song. Bonus episode. And honestly, I it's music to my ears. I, I, you should make an album. We have a very special guest this Friday, and that is Blake J. Harris. Ben, you know who that is. I do know who that is. You do now. So Well, I did before, too, just well, to be clear. Now you extra know okay. who he is. Yes. So Blake is an author. He wrote a book called Console Wars, which is about uh, the battle between Sega and Nintendo in the 90s. It kind of takes the aspect of the marketing aspects between Sega of America and how they rose from being a nobody to being more popular to some extent than Nintendo at well, certain points. It's an insane read, and you should definitely check it out. Uh, there'll be a link in the show description to um, that book, an affiliate link, actually. So you can head on over there uh, and check that out. We also are going to have a link to pre-order Blake's new book. Yes, it's called History of the Future. Uh, there's a subtitle, too, that's about Oculus. The subtitle is Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. What a, what a subtitle there. It is. And you're going to hear some about both books here and the process and everything. Um, there's some tasty morsels of what the new book is going to uh, hold within it. And we have uh, checked out the first little bit that he was so kind to send over to us. And it's looking like a stellar read. Hey, Ben, you know Seth Rogen. Yeah. He might be mentioned on this podcast. Maybe. He might be on it. Mm -hmm. No, he won't. He's not going to be you on it. But you don't know that. Dude. Blake, we need to get Blake to help hook us up, get Seth Rogen as an interview. We could have them both on. Whoa, that would be cool. Yeah. Maybe when the show gets closer, we can figure that out. Anyway, there's a Console Wars uh, TV show coming out uh, that involves Seth Rogen and also the director of Kong Skull Island. So we're going to talk about that as well. So without further ado, here's our interview with Blake J. Harris. All right, so we're here with Blake J. Harris. Blake, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're super excited to have you on. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. I've been chatting with you guys uh, over Twitter for a little while now. It's cool to finally be on the show. Yeah, we have a little bit of a, a Twitter bromance going on, maybe something like that. I don't know what it's called now in the internet era. Um, it's true. But so for the listeners out there, if you don't know who Blake is, he uh, wrote an awesome book called Console Wars, uh, one of my personal faves definitely and uh he has a new book coming out uh about virtual reality so like let's first talk about the new book uh what's the sh what's the the spiel on it uh the spiel so the the new book is called the history of the future um oculus facebook and the revolution that swept virtual reality which you might notice has a similar cadence to sega and nintendo and the battle that defined a generation um which was not unintentional. Um, but uh, yeah, so actually I remember, I distinctly remember after I had finished Console Wars back in 2014, and this was, I think, before it had even come out, and I was talking to my uh, my literary manager and saying, like, man, it's, it's kind of sad. I'm never going to write a book as good as Console Wars. And he said, no, 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 you'll, you'll keep getting better at writing. Don't worry. And I said, oh, I, I hope so. But I just don't think I'm ever going to find a story as fascinating and with as many larger than life characters and intersection of technology and entertainment and, uh, you know, having such a cultural impact 
And I, I suppose it definitely remains to be seen whether VR will have the cultural impact of, say, get Nintendo. But I was pretty thrilled when I uh, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say I stumbled on the Oculus story since uh, there was a lot of people interested in it. But, but once I was able to sort of get behind the scenes on that and really dig into it. And so I've spent the past three and a half years really um, speaking with the guys who started Oculus, the early employees, uh, people who have joined since they sold to Facebook for $3 billion, and just really getting to understand um, what happened there and uh, the virtual reality landscape, speaking with people at other companies as well, and uh, putting together this book that is finally coming out in February. Yeah, so I guess the, the question that I had was, with Console Wars, you were talking about something that happened, what, 25, year, 30 years ago? More than <laughs> that? So, and now you've moved to something much more recent, right? So I'm just curious about how how did you decide that like, hey, VR, this is, this is what I want to go for instead of maybe reaching something further back like Console Wars? Oh, it's, I mean, it's a great question because you kind of hit the nail on the head with what separated my challenge with this book from console wars you know when 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 i started writing console wars you know i had done a little bit of research by that point but basically when like you know i guess day one of writing i knew like here's the beginning here's the middle here's the end here's my outline here's chapter one here's chapter 60 and obviously you know changed as i got into it but but for the most part i knew exactly where i was headed and what was important to try to hit um, and this story was very much the opposite. Um, you know, I, it took me, I think, 14 months to get the access I wanted from Oculus and Facebook, um, which was later revoked a couple of years later. But, um, but you know, at, at the time that that happened, when I finally got the access, it was in February 2016, one month before Oculus had launched their uh, the consumer version, CV1, of the Oculus Rift. So, um you know, who we, I didn't really know how it was going to go. I, I thought it was going to go very differently, as did the people at the company. Um, and so this was a completely different challenge. And then making it even more complicated was the fact that one of the main characters in the book is uh, the founder of Oculus, Palmer Lucky. And, uh, but, you know, seven months later, uh, he became the most hated man in Silicon Valley, which is not my editorialization, but I think Wired actually had an article. Actually, their article was that Palmer was the worst in Silicon Valley. And then six months after that, he got fired. Um, so that totally changed uh, the story, um, just to the extent that it was important to include uh, what happened there. And it was also very hard to get the information about what happened there. And so, yeah, so it was really tough. Uh, but I guess part, you know, half of your question was like, why VR? And, and I guess it does go to what I had said earlier about looking for something that would have the same um, cultural impact and gaming impact as Sega and Nintendo did. And like I said, it very much remains to be seen whether VR will end up having that sort of impact. But um, I think that most people who try a VR headset, whether it was you know Oculus's early dev kits or whether it's the Rift, the Vive, PlayStation VR or something else, um, it is pretty magical. Um, and there's a lot of things, a lot of cool products that we come across or hear about, and they're generally pretty cool. Um, but like there, there is something different about virtual reality. Like you really, in certain cases, you really do feel like you're transported someplace else. Um, 
And, and so I guess I would say that that experience itself was a big part of why I wanted to um, tackle this project, even though it, it was much more difficult to do so as things were changing. And one other thing that's also worth mentioning for, just because I thought it was kind of interesting and maybe for aspiring writers out there, or maybe they'd have a different mentality. But, you know, when I first started writing the book, um, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be for a lot of reasons. Um, one is I think it's kind of fun and important as a journalist not to know what the story is going to be. And the other is that it was developing. So even if I had at that point, it probably would have changed. Um, but, but you know, I, I guess I didn't know how much of the story was going to be Oculus versus looking at various players in the industry. And and I remember there was some time in, uh, in mid-2016 uh, after the Oculus Rift had shipped and the HTC 5 had shipped. And it was almost like uh, every day there was some great, some story in the virtual reality news world um, that like seemed like it could be a very big deal. You know, like some new company or some new game or some new experience um, that seemed really cool or seemed to have the potential to be really important. And I kind of just remember thinking like, wow, like I, I, wa- I want to dig my teeth into all these things. Um, and I will try my best, but there's just so much, and I don't know what is going to pan out. I don't know what's going to be relevant a few years from now, um, and I don't know what's going to be, you know, what's what's for real and what's kind of hype. And and I kind of felt like the more, the further I went along, and the the bigger the scope of the VR landscape grew, the more I shrunk my focus um, to focus more on Oculus. And and I remember thinking at the time that it was almost like. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the television show Mad Men. And so I was thinking that, you know, if you're going to tell a story of advertising agencies or advertising in the 1960s, you could, you know, look at multiple different firms and multiple different campaigns, or you could almost shrink the perspective smaller and smaller to just Sterling Cooper or whatever their agency became named and, and you know, sort of see it through that prism. And at least you'll have the familiarity to the characters and sort of understand the different angles that you're looking at it from. And that's what I ended up doing for the most part. Blake, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and then I think you also mentioned in the, you, you were kind enough to send this over just a tiny snippet of, uh, of the, of the book, but in the intro to your book, I think the, the words you used were that your access was abruptly cut off uh, to Oculus. Can you talk about how that went or did it just happen? Um, um, sure. I'm happy to talk about how it went. And I kind of think it's important to talk about how it went because uh, most of it, the decision-making, I would say, came from the Facebook side. And I think that uh, Facebook has obviously been in the news a lot lately and deservingly so. And I think that, um, I mean, without getting too much into it, though, I can elaborate if you want. Uh, like the, the sure. In a nutshell, it was basically that for a period of about six months, Facebook had been systematically lying to me, particularly with regards to Palmer Lucky and the reason for his exit. And um, once I began to uh, reveal to them that I actually knew what the truth was, um, they decided it was better not to talk to me and to tell all of their employees not to talk to me. And I, you know, I, I, I guess I kind of envisioned at some point, um, that maybe my access would end with Facebook or maybe my access would end because I did come across a lot of pieces of information, not just related to Palmer, but just in general that I felt like they would not be 
too psyched about getting out there. Um, but what I found particularly uh, fascinating and unnerving was that was the extent to which Facebook uh, lied to me. Um, and and I make that distinction between lying and spin. You know, spin to me is is embellishment. It's um, trying to uh, take real facts and bend them as much as you can to accommodate a more favorable version or the version that you want. Um, and that's what, you know, PR teams and communication teams do. And as much as it is annoying to deal with that as a journalist, I, I respect it. That's their job. But being lied to, to me, is a whole other different thing. Um, that's, you know, to me, that's even way worse than saying no comment. And so that really bothered me. And it bothered me too, because as you guys, you know, know are familiar with from console wars, I have, uh, I, I write in a narrative nonfiction style. So it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not always a situation of attributing quotes directly to the source, but try my be- try my best to um, accurately represent what happened um, and quoting the people who spoke in the moment, not people who are reflecting on it. So I almost felt like um, they, they were, they, I mean, but they were essentially trying to launder their misinformation through me and in a way that they didn't think would come back to them because it wouldn't be sourced to them. Um, but I ended up, uh, making an exception because I felt like it was important that it, it, uh, be clear who the information was coming from. And that was the source of, uh, our, <laughs> the end of our relationship. That's crazy. So are you, uh, are you like on a hit list now? Does Facebook have you on? Like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course. <laughs> the Zuck list. Uh, the Zuck list. Yeah. Um, I mean, like all good writers, I'm paranoid. Right. So, sure. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I don't have Facebook on my phone. I, uh, <laughs> I always worry about being recorded in my home, but I don't know. Um, I, who, I don't know if there's any such list, um, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're not going to be too happy with the book. Sure. Yeah. Are you like you and your publisher, are you like lawyered up? Is that something that has a discussion or something like that? As far as, you know, if you said they're not happy about this book, then, you know, who knows what could happen, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, not, you know, the most paranoid version is that there's some sort of hit list and that they'll make my life miserable. But in in, in a much more realistic and pragmatic way, um, there are legal ramifications and Facebook is a big company. So even if it, you know, if there was some sort of allegation they could make that had no merit, that could still just make life more difficult for myself, and my publisher. So the, the legal review of this book was a way more intense process than it was with Council Wars. Um, unfortunately, HarperCollins, um, you know, was very aware of that. And, and, you know, I spent a lot of time with their lawyer and we were very clear um, about it. And, and, and there was actually, there was a couple things that, um, so, so as part of my research, I um, obtained, I think it was like 25,000 emails, which was, took a long time to get through, but it was amazing. And, and like, there was even some stuff that I had included in my draft of the book that were actual emails, you know, not me just like, you know, sharing information that I thought or that I had gotten from sources. Um, and even some of the emails uh, we were advised not to include because we didn't have the proper context for it. So, that, you know, they did a very serious legal review. And uh, and I guess it'll be interesting to see how Facebook responds. If, if, if the past few months are any indication, all Facebook does when bad news comes out is have somebody who usually isn't even a first person, like, witness to what they're talking about so they can just 
uh, come out and say, that's not true. That's, that's false. They don't even say what's false about it. They just say, that's not true. And then they just hope it goes away. So maybe that's what will happen. Hmm. Um, well, yeah. you know, hopefully they make a stink of it. Hopefully you don't get sued or anything, but sure. You know, the, the publicity would be great, right? If they, if they Facebook said this isn't true about us, I mean, people are going to want to know what it is. So, I mean, it's a maybe it'll be the best. Oh, it's an interesting question. I mean, as a, as somebody who spent three and a half years researching this, and also because um, journalism became such a big part of like a theme of the book because of what happened with Palmer and how inaccurately everything was reported, you know, I feel like my, my, um, you know, my real hope is that everyone involved will say like, that's accurate. Even, you know, even if it doesn't put it just in a flattering light or we don't agree with it, that's accurate. But to your point, from a marketing perspective, there might be some benefit to people claiming otherwise, (laughs) especially when I have actual, you know, several emails proving that they're lying. Sure. So Blake, you mentioned a little bit about your writing style and it's interesting because if I'm sure you've seen like either on Amazon or some of the reviews of console wars, either it is the thing, one of the strongest positives they have about the book, (laughs) or it is one of the worst things and it's trash. So um, it seems like it's, you know, it's very divisive. I personally really liked it um, is the fact that it, you know, it's very like I think you said in the in the introduction of the new book, it's not an oral history, but it's sort of like that. Right. Um, so taking in those the praise and the criticism of console wars, did that did that affect how you wrote this book? Um, is it is it changed in any way or somewhere in the middle? That is like a, that's an awesome question. And uh, and I'm not just kissing your ass <laughs> to say so, because that like really you know, that, that really gets into something that was a huge, uh, like, like, uh, emotional issue or, or something that I, that I thought about a great deal towards the beginning of this book. And yes, like to your point, like I would say, um, I, I always kind of think about it as like 25% of people thought console wars was like incredible. 50% of people, uh, liked it, maybe really liked it. And then 25% of people thought it was the biggest piece of shit ever written um and to, and yes it's usually because of the the style of the dialogue and um for me console wars was the first thing that i ever wrote that was published so like the first thing that was ever read by anyone other than my wife and my parents um so you know it was a interesting experience to have strangers and uh even like critics that i admire say stuff is bad <laughs> um and uh but, but at the end, you know, and so I think like initially coming into the new book, I was thinking like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta avoid, I gotta change that. Uh, I gotta make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, but then, you know, from a more rational standpoint, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm trying to accommodate the 25% of the people who didn't like it, which is not a bad way to, th- you know, basically I would say that the criticism itself was probably helpful because it really forced me to evaluate what am I doing here? Do I stand behind what I'm doing? Um, is there anything to any merit to some of the criticisms? And, and I, and I think that there, there was some merit to some of the criticisms and, and um, but, but ultimately, like, I guess initially I was thinking, okay, I'm going to take more of a encyclopedic approach to this new book. Um, and then I, after putting the story together and really getting to know the people involved, I kind of came to believe that that was uh, really like almost unfair to them um, because the reason I chose to do that for the console wars book was I felt like it was the best way to capture 
what it was, you know, the, to capture what it was actually like to be there and to honor the people at Sega and at Nintendo. And in this case, I would be basically putting my own fragile ego in front of doing the same thing here. Um, and so I thought it was important to, um, to do the same sort of thing as I did in console wars to make you feel like you're in the room with these people inside the heads with these people. Um, but like I said, there is some value to, um, good criticism. And also, like I had mentioned earlier, so much of the end of the book became about, uh, looking at, at reporting and, and the media and how they incorrectly covered what happened with Palmer Lucky. And so I definitely challenged myself to do, to basically be the work that I want to read. Um, so I, um, and I think it's also mentioned in the author's note, like as much as possible, I tried to step out of the way and let things be said in the words of the subject. So even more, you know, maybe, maybe more in console wars, I, um, editorialized or I, I took, you know, I tried to condense like what, you know, a 30 minute conversation into a paragraph, um, of what I took away from it. But in this case, I've tried to just say, you know, almost use their own words from that 30 minute conversation. And yes, I'm still like picking and choosing which, which words, but, um, I really try to take myself out of it as much as possible. But, um, ultimately I, I you know, I, I, th- I, like I said, I do think it's a really good question because, um, it's hard to read uh, very, very negative reviews. And what was very confusing for me was like, I remember one of the worst ones is from uh, the Telegraph. And it's something like console wars is hideously false. And, and uh, you know, I think, and I got like a one out of one out of 10 stars. Um, and then, and at the same time, I have like, the, the, the main characters in console wars, like Tom Kalinske and Alan Nielsen and Ellen Van, Ellen Beth Van Buskirk, and they're emailing me and even emailing me this review and being like, this is crazy. We think that the book is so true. And so you have the actual participants saying like, like, well, you nailed it. Like you captured it. And then people who weren't there saying this is false. And I just was like, wow, that's kind of weird. Um, so I'd probably defer to, you know, like, like I'm, I, I don't think I'm doing the wrong thing here. Sure. Um, like getting back to the oral history thing, I think, um, you know, you never want to, um, you're never beholden to the subjects to write what they want, but because it is their story, I think that um, it's important that it feels accurate to them um, to a degree, or at least includes their various perspectives and they feel like they're represented accurately. With the new book, obviously, you know, reporting is difficult and making sure you get the right story and the right amount of sources is difficult. So there, there's that. But with uh, Console Wars, you know, it being so far relatively speaking in the past um you know what kind of difficulties did you come up against in in people's memories of things getting the the right information finding the right people you know they could be anywhere by now kind of thing um did you come up against any of that or did it seem pretty a pretty smooth process and actually digging that story up as as uh you know accurately as possible um it, it was a big challenge i it was probably because that was my first book and my first like real in-depth um, work of journalism or nonfiction, I probably didn't realize early on how big of a challenge it was, which I think in the end, which was probably a good thing in the end. I almost kind of felt like um, a feeling similar to how people at Sega would describe it. Like they almost didn't realize what they were getting in for. And they felt that was a good thing because they maybe wouldn't have signed up to do it had they realized early on, but it was super hard. Um, 
to, first of all, to just figure out who to speak with. Um, there was no like, you know, the, the sort of the idea of writing the book was premised on that there was no such book like this and that there was such, such a small amount of um, information from that era. So it was hard to figure out who to speak with. It was very hard to get in touch with people. Um, and then, and then just from like a chronological perspective, um, you know, telling a, a, a narrative nonfiction story, it, it hinges so much on knowing what happens and when, um, and, and sort of building that up and, and then take his case, like the rise and fall. Um, and, and of course people didn't remember specific dates of things like, you know, fortunately there was trade shows, which were big milestones, um, in both books actually. But, um, you know, that, that helped sort of give, give these moments that everyone sort of seemed to share and which there was some historical records for, but, you know, one of the things that I am proudest of and definitely, um, you know, it was hard to put together, but made it easier is that like in console wars, I, you know, I'm very confident in the reporting because I spent a long time confirming it and, and even working with the sources and getting feedback from them in a lot of cases um, to, to make sure that, that the, the sequence of events is accurate and what's described is accurate. But no, but, but there's even a note at the beginning of the book that in some cases uh, like scenes are, um, condensed and uh, and and basically the, a long-winded way of saying that in console wars I can't put a date to every single event that happened in it. Whereas with this new book, I can tell you the day that every single sentence ha- or you know every single scene and every single conversation happened, and that was important to me. Like there was a few, I actually wrote a few scenes or a few uh, you know conversations from. A few years from a few years ago that I liked, but I ended up not including in the book because I couldn't pinpoint it to a specific day. Um, so that was definitely one of the big challenges with console wars, and uh, you know, one of the big things with with this new book is is like email. You know, email didn't really exist, or at least it wasn't prevalent at Sega or Nintendo. Um, but with the new book, I had access to so many different emails that I could really pinpoint things down to a day. Um, and, and that was awesome for me. And it was awesome for me to go through all those emails, which took several weeks, but it was like, I remember describing it to friends as like Christmas for me. So right after, I, I think this was right after console wars came out, there was big news about Seth Rogen being interested in doing some different projects as far as I think at the time it was a, a movie and a documentary series. And then there was a lot of silence yep. for a long time. And so recently new news has broke that uh, it's back, but it's a, just a TV series now, right? Yeah. So actually, so today's January 5th. I don't know uh, when this will be released, but it's, you know, the whole story actually goes back to January 6th, 2012. Um, I was realizing this yesterday, <laughs> the anniversary as it were, we're coming up. Um, and so that was so it was actually January 6, 2012 was the first time that myself and my uh, film directing partner uh, Jonah Tulis went out to LA and met with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and their uh, company Point Grey Pictures. So that was uh, seven years ago now. And so that was actually before it was before Console Wars came out. It was also before I had even sold the book um, to a publisher. Um, so it was like way back when. And I always think that's important 
because it's so unusual because it was so life changing for me. And then also just because I think like Seth and Evan deserve a ton of credit for, you know, taking a chance on me and the book at a time when it didn't even fully exist and which I was, you know, I had never done anything <laughs> particularly relevant before. Um, and so, yeah, so, so uh, in, in early 2012, we met with them by the end of the day, they wanted to be involved with a, a movie version and a documentary version. Uh, and the documentary I would direct with uh, my partner, Jonah, and uh, the film version they were going to be involved with either. We, di- we didn't know at that point whether Seth was going to act in it, whether he was going to write it, whether he was going to direct it. And then a few months later, um, after they directed their first movie, the This is the End, the Apocalypse movie, they, I think they were down in New Orleans shooting that. So they were kind of MIA for a bit. But then, uh, then they connected with Scott Rudin. And then Scott brought the project to Sony. And then Sony bought the option to do this as a movie. And then we sold the book. Um, and I always remember that even at that point when we sold the book, like, you know, the book proposal went out to 25 different publishers and we had Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin attached doing all these cool things. Um, and, and even 22 of the 25 publishers passed on the book because they said video game books don't sell, which I remember thinking was kind of crazy. Cause like, you know, I understand you're not buying a book from me, Blake, but like not, you know, who cares what this is about with all these, much more talented people than I involved. Like, shouldn't you at least want to take a chance on that? Um, and then uh, I wrote the book in 2013. The book came out in 2014. And then throughout all that time, and then in the next couple, you know, the the years after since, we 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 actually all shot all the document or not all the documentary. We shot all the interviews uh, for the initial dra- stage of the documentary. Um, and then Joan and I were working with a few different editors to work on, to edit that. Um, meanwhile, we're also developing the feature film version of console wars. And then somewhere along the way, um, we, we all started to think that, uh, a, a television series would be better. Um, which was like music to my ears because I like, you know, I was very supportive as much as possible for a, a, a movie version of, you know, they're gonna make a movie in my book. That's life-changing but at the same time my you know the book is 550 pages i was you know i had reservations that 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 a a great story could be told in 90 minutes or or more likely it it was that like i'm pretty confident that seth and evan and scott rudin could figure out how to do that i just knew it was going to have to axe a lot of characters and conflate you know combine characters and not get to a lot of the cool things so that was you know at the end of the day, I could live with that for sure. But, but you know, doing an epi- uh, doing a series now, whether it's like eight episodes or 10 episodes or 13 episodes, uh, that's way more um, up my alley. And I also prefer television shows to movies. So anyway, um, we ended up, uh, af- we ended up waiting until um, the movie option uh, lapsed with Sony and then, uh, Earlier this year, or not this year anymore, uh, early 2018, Seth and Evan uh, found a great screenwriter named Mike Rosolio and uh, and a director, Jordan Voigt-Roberts, who had recently done Kong Skull Island and has done a lot of cool stuff. And, and the thing that like sold me the most was that he did the uh, Destiny uh, commercials, right? Uh, which I thought were like <laughs> amazing. I think he's working on Metal Gear, too, right? He is working on Metal Gear, yeah. Yeah. He's working on that. You know, he's a huge video game fan. Like, I remember the first time that Seth and Evan uh, put me in touch with, with Jordan and Mike. We had a call, the three of us. And uh, Jordan started off the call by saying that 
console wars was the most important book that was ever written in his opinion and he was like i'm only 50 percent joking so so he you know he's a big fan of the book but he's also he just loves the video game world i think his yearbook one of his yearbook quotes was about miyamoto or maybe he had a, like a uh an image of miyamoto in his yearbook so like the guy is for real uh which is awesome like i felt i feel like the project is in great hands um and so right now um like we, we sold uh with jordan and mike involved we we met with some uh production companies or jordan and mike and seth and evan and the, and my manager julian who's a producer all the you know the whole team uh ended up pitching it to a bunch of places in early to mid 2018 um and then Jonah and I, the, my co-director for the documentary, ended up going out and meeting with all those places as well to talk about the documentary component. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, we ended up selling the project to uh, Legendary Pictures. And, uh, and and like you said, like the news recently came out, we were fi- you know the deal was finally closed. And uh, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that 2019 is an exciting year. Uh, right now, Mike is working on the script, and. Uh, and I won't, you know, I, it's not my place to share any details of that other than to say that he's doing an amazing job and I'm, I'm very, very happy. Were there, just just out of curiosity, were there points where it was like, well, I don't know if this is going to happen or not, because I know studios buy options and rights uh, all the time and then just shelve them and, you know, they don't sure. want to do it. Was there, was it kind of always moving or was there, were there points where you were like, well, I, I guess I sold it to the wrong company. No, that's a really great question. I mean, I think that because of the unusual nature in which, um, you know, Seth and Evan were involved so early and, and were able to get, and with, with Scott Rudin got the rights before the book was even out. Um, this was a different sort of situation. You know, it wasn't like the book came out, it was popular and then someone grabbed the rights and just kind of sat on them or was, you know, I guess I think a lot of times, um, with the situation you described happens all the time where, a, you know, book rights or whatever, um, you know, board game rights or whatever rights, exi- you know, an article, you know, articles are optional all the time um, by, by, by production companies and by studios and, and just nothing really happens with them. And, and a lot of that is because um, people at the studios, the production companies see an interesting story, uh, but they end up not um, finding the right um, talent attached to it usually storytelling talent like whether it's screenwriters or producers or directors um so in our case at least we always did have um you know seth and evan and then now once they brought on jordan like i think that's always what made the project never feel like it was just some asset that had been acquired it wasn't going anywhere because there was always people who were passionate and actively involved in it right um so there wasn't really a, there was definitely points over the past six years where I felt like, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen. But it was never like I felt like, oh, this project has been forgotten about, and and man, what a bummer. And and you know I've I've said, um, I think even just like twice over the past month because um, I was talking about how the project is going now that like yeah you know, I, I'm an impatient person, so of course I would have loved for like all this to have been done and happened years ago. Though I guess maybe not because I like the idea of a TV series of our movie, but basically, you know, of course I want everything to happen yesterday. Um, but, but at the end of the day, even if it ta- ends up taking two more years, like it will so totally be worth it because it really was life changing for me. Like at the time back in 2012, even I, I remember Jonah and I met with Seth and Evan on a Thursday 
And then that Monday, so four days later, I was back at my day job at like 6.30 in the morning where I was trading commodities for Brazilian clients, trading soybeans, <laughs> and coffee, and sugar, and corn, um, which, uh, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing with my life. So, you know, I will forever be grateful to Seth and Evan for seeing that potential and, and wanting to move forward with this because it did help me uh, work, you know, get to write full time. And so... Um, I'm very conscious of the fact that I that that was that I've been very lucky in that regard, and also lucky in the regard that you're talking about, where I never felt like the console wars project was one that just kind of got forgotten about or well has gotten abandoned. Uh, at least there always was active movement on it. That's awesome. Well, I just want to encourage everybody, you know, with with console wars, uh, if you haven't read it, if you haven't heard of it, um, we have a link in the description here. Be sure to check it out. You can get it all over the place. Um, we'll have links to you know Amazon and everything. I know the audiobook is also great. I started reading it and realized I just had more time to listen, so I also bought the audiobook and and listened to that. And then um, the history of the future is up for pre-order, and that comes out next month, right, Blake? Yeah, it comes out February nineteenth. And I and I just want to thank you guys and and, um, and your listeners too. That like it really did always stick with me that so many publishers said that video game books don't sell. Um, and I guess like historically that had been the case. Uh, but the reason that Hot Wars has sold um, is because uh, what a surprise, you know, video game players actually enjoy reading books. Um, and it's because people like you guys and other people have just really amplified the message. Like I feel like it's very much a word of mouth success. Um, and, and so I just really appreciate um, you guys helping to spread the word and also any of your listeners too. I think, it just just quickly to elaborate on that it's you know, video game books may not sell but books that are well written and researched that just happen to be about video games sell you know the product the quality matters whereas many video game books i've read in the past are just you know i'm not trying to throw shade at anybody but just terribly written novelizations of a video game and that's not what people intellectual you know thinkers are looking for we're not just looking for some fodder we're looking for something we can actually sink our teeth into that you know if if it's about our interest that's even better oh well thank you yeah like early on in writing console wars i sort of realized what my sort of writing style was in a nutshell or at least what my goal was and that has carried through with this new book as well and i describe it usually as um i want to write uh, tech stories or gaming stories in a way that even my grandma will appreciate. So, yeah, she she wasn't a big fan of Sega and Nintendo, and other than that, I asked her to buy me games from Sega and Nintendo, and she doesn't know the first thing about Oculus or really Facebook. But if you can ground it in character and talk about the bigger ideas about why this is groundbreaking or why this is important or why this is challenging, and you just kind of get to the human drama and and the part that impacts us you know, consumers, us people on the outside that don't even necessarily know what's going on. Um, you know, that's always what I want to try to, to capture. Um, Cause I think that that's what's most magical and also what does a good job of capturing what it was like for those who lived it. And also what it was like for those of us on the outside who are impacted by it. So Blake, if our listeners want to get connected with you, obviously read the book, but um, it like, is your Twitter a good place where they can, uh, keep up with you. I was going to say Facebook, but now that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, Twitter's always, always, I, um, there's, there's a lot to love and a lot to hate about Twitter, yeah. but I do overall really like it. Um, and, and I, 
um, I think I almost always get back to people on Twitter and especially anyone who's like an aspiring uh, writer that has questions about doing a book or doing an article. I always want to help as much as possible with uh, video game journalism because I love reading that stuff and I think that there's not enough of it. So yeah, you can uh, reach me at Blake J. Harris, NYC, all one word on Twitter. And uh, it's almost for certain that I will get back to you. Even if you have something nasty to say, I'll probably uh, thank you for your time. So um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we've always appreciated you for you know retweeting some of our stuff and being sure. a supporter. So that's that's meant a lot uh, coming from you for sure, man. So again, thanks, Blake. Hopefully, we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the interview. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to go over and check out first of all Console Wars and pre-order Blake's new book. Um, they also have audiobook versions, I'm assuming he's going to have of the new book, but definitely of Console Wars. It's a great listen. Uh, got a great narrator there for that. Um, again, links are in the show description, and we encourage you to check it out. And then, you know, say hi to Blake. And I meant to mention that when we announced Blake was on the show, uh-huh. one of the main characters, so to say, of Console Wars liked the tweet. Yeah, He actually, I don't, he either liked it or retweeted it. Amazing. So that was kind of cool because you'll you'll hear about the characters from the book. They're real people. They're real people. So it's a bit, it's that interesting. Of At a least story. as far as you know. Whoa, yeah. So check out the book. Pre-order the new book. Follow us twittercom phantom. You can also follow Blake, as we said, and check out handsomephantom.com. Hey, and if you haven't, leave us an iTunes review. That'd be great. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So we will see you guys for a normally scheduled episode next Wednesday.